Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode in a series where I converse with classicists and ancient historians about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special guest episode, I am joined by Dr. Curtis Dozier, Assistant Professor of Greek and Roman Studies at Vassar College. He is the producer and host of The Mirror of Antiquity, a podcast featuring classical scholars discussing the intersections of their research, the contemporary world, and their own lives. More importantly to our discussion, he is also the director of Pharos, Doing Justice to the Classics, a website devoted to documenting and responding to appropriations of ancient Greece and Rome by hate groups online. We discuss some of the reasons how, as well as why, white supremacists have taken to co-opting classical imagery to support their twisted worldviews. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Dr. Curtis Dozier. Yeah, I'm, I'm Curtis Dozier. I teach in the Department of Greek and Roman Studies at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. I've, I've taught here for 12 years now. And back in 2017, I launched my website called Pharos, Doing Justice to the Classics, which you can find online at doingjusticetotheclassics.org, pharosclassics.org. So why did you choose Pharos? Obviously, that harkens to the lighthouse of Alexandria, right? Or is there another Pharos that I'm missing? Yeah, that's the that's the inspiration for the name. I mean, the original purpose of the site was to document and respond to appropriations of Greco-Roman antiquity by hate groups online. You're illuminating it like a lighthouse illuminates. Well, I'm illuminating it the way a lighthouse does. And I also saw Alexandria, Egypt, where the lighthouse was located as a kind of example of antiquity that the white supremacists don't recognize as part of antiquity. That is, it's located in Africa. It's a multicultural center. It's, it's located at the crossroads of you know, many different civilizations that were present in the ancient Mediterranean. And yeah, it was a kind of, at the same time, a kind of symbol to illuminate and orient oneself. And so the the purpose of the site was to be a kind of beacon for progressive approaches to the ancient world in response to what hate groups were doing with it. And um, the inspiration for the site was a essay written by Donna Zuckerberg on her journal Eidolon called How to Be a Good Classicist Under a Bad Emperor, which she wrote after the election of President Trump. And in that essay, she basically called everyone's attention to the fact that white supremacists and misogynists and xenophobes and anti-Semites online were very interested in Greco-Roman antiquity and saw it as providing legitimacy to their political views. And I think her her argument in that was, as white supremacy and white nationalism are ascendant in the United States, it's incumbent on classical scholars to resist the use of antiquity by that ascendant white supremacy. She had a lot of ideas in the article about how we could do that. And one of them, which was just kind of an aside at the end of the article, was someone should create a Tumblr to document that this is happening. And at that time, I was looking for, I, you know, I had some space to consider new projects and I have some institutional support at Vassar here to do a project like that. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I think I could, 
I could try that. Uh, I didn't know what Tumblr was. <laughs> so I called Donna. I had done some writing for her on Eidolon before. So I, I knew her a little and I called her and we talked about it. And um, in the end, I decided not to use Tumblr. I, I used a platform that I could use through a Vassar server here because it was important to me to have an institutional endorsement of, of what I was doing. Vassar was 100% sort of E from the get-go? I, w- I would say so. I mean, I met with the vice president for communications. Um, I met with the president to say I was planning to do this. And and they said, yeah, go for it. They were they were very supportive. I mean, their, their attitude was, you know, this is an educational institution, so it should be an educational site. And so I, I think I've tried to stick with that, but they were very supportive. They, yeah, they allowed me to locate it on Vassar.edu servers. We've got a great site design that was done by someone in the communications office here. Yeah, the institutional support has been great. I worked on it for about a, about a year and uh, launched it in November of 2017 with a f- couple articles with a misogynist saying that because Aristotle says women are inferior to men, that's how we know they really are inferior to men. And an article about, at that time, there had recently been some violent protests in Berkeley, California. In any case, there were some people uh, with Spartan imagery at those protests. And so we wrote about that. And in the original conception of the site, what we did was we invited specialists to comment on the appropriations. So we also had reached out to specialists in ancient philosophy to comment on the claim about Aristotle. And we had reached out to historians of Sparta to comment on the use of uh, Spartan imagery at these at these protests. And so we we documented that those things were happening, but then we also wrote these kind of collaborative response essays pointing out some of the problems in the way the misogynists were using Aristotle or the some of the complexity in the Spartan imagery. We launched the site in 2017 with those articles. And since then, I've written about 80 more articles and the site has been viewed. I think we just passed 170,000 page views in 160 countries. So that's not a giant number for kind of a niche. It's a kind of a niche website. So, you know, but I, I'm, I'm proud of that. And I think it shows that the site is interesting to people beyond the field of classics, that there are, it's not just classics professors and students that, that are, are reading it. We've been written about in the Chronicle of Higher Education, in the New Statesman, the Nation, you know, we've got some press you know, I had no idea what would happen. It was a kind of experiment. I think it actually has really filled a need. Now, over time, I haven't done as many of the response essays where I collect the perspectives of specialists. I mean, those are still some of the most viewed articles on the site. So people love those. But I've, I've sort of moved toward feeling like the role of the site is to catalog and describe the ways that hate groups are using Greco-Roman antiquity, because it's a very complex and far-reaching ecosystem. Yeah, in the next couple years, I hope to have a book out on the phenomenon of uh, Greco-Roman antiquity and white supremacy in the 21st century. Do you know how it's going to be like put together? Um, Because that's a very, I guess, big subject. I mean, it's still pretty early days. So in a way, I'm kind of figuring that out. But I think what I'm going to organize it around is the attitudes toward antiquity that are kind of underlie the ways 
antiquity is being used in support of racist politics. So what I mean by that is, well, I guess that's one of the things I find most interesting about these white supremacist appropriations is that their attitude to antiquity is actually very similar to the traditional attitude of antiquity in the field of classics and the attitude toward antiquity that I think most people in the public who care about antiquity is. That is, they have a view of antiquity as a impressive and admirable civilization where there were people who, I don't know, thought important thoughts and accomplished impressive things and developed influential ideas and political systems that are worthy of imitation and emulation. This is what the field of classics is kind of founded on. The very name classics is a name that expresses that admiration or that idealization of the ancient world. And this is why uh, in the more popular sphere, people make movies about antiquity. They uh, write books about antiquity for broad audiences because there's a kind of belief that antiquity is has a kind of special value to it. And that's basically what the white supremacists believe too. <laughs> they believe that because there are various features of ancient civilization that correspond to their beliefs about how our society should be organized politically and socially, they think antiquity is pretty useful for demonstrating the the correctness of their hateful views. But they pick and choose the knowledge that they care to retain from antiquity. White supremacists will look at, okay, the Spartans, well, but we're going to ignore the pederasty because we don't like homosexuals. But the Spartans, like they just pick and choose. So it's kind of like this willful ignorance that just kind of Every time I, I read one of your articles, I'm just like, did they not actually read the sources? So there's a yeah, there's a lot to say say about that. The definitely you're right that the their use of antiquity is selective and narrow. And in fact, on that point of the Spartans and the kind of homosocial or homoerotic dimensions of Spartan masculinity, you know, I've even seen them say that that was not part of true Spartan culture, but was, they even call it like a disease that the Spartans caught under the influence of the indigenous people of Greece whom they conquered when they came there. Or some of them even claim that it was a like Semitic influence <laughs> that brought that to Sparta. And I don't think there's any evidence for that. You know, as an example of what what you're talking about, they either ignore the homoeroticism of of Spartan masculinity, or they explain it away as not truly Spartan. So, so yeah, that's a good example of what you're talking about. But you know, the other thing I would say is, I guess part of my work though is to resist this idea or complicate this idea that the white supremacists are misunderstanding antiquity in really fundamental ways. They definitely are selective. They definitely ignore or explain away aspects that don't fit with their ideology. So I don't want to. I don't want to say they don't do that. So you think it's purposeful ignorance? Like they understand it, but they choose to ignore it. Um, in some cases, but I also kind of want to say that, or some of the ways we would want to criticize their use of history correspond to ways that we need to be critical of our own use of history. So. One thing, one thing the white supremacist cites I document on Pharos, I would say almost always do is kind of accept the point of view in the ancient sources as 
authoritative and in some sense true. You know, the the better practice of history is to recognize that the point of view in almost all ancient sources is a elite or aristocratic point of view, probably male, probably politically central as opposed to associated with the provinces. This is maybe more true of Rome than Greece, but you know, it's the point of view that is generated from a politically central, and I mean that both ge- geographically and ideologically, position. So that you know, there's all these biases in the in the sources that come from that point of view, and the white supremacists don't don't recognize that. They basically will say that because Plato or Aristotle said this, it must be true because they're great classical thinkers. So that's a methodological problem in their use of history, but it's actually one that professional scholars have to do a lot of work to resist also. And you can look at a lot of kind of older older scholarship, even in the modern age, we're not totally innocent of this, made that same error of basically just accepting the point of view of the sources as a authoritative point of view. And so on the one hand, the white supremacists, their politics are appalling and shocking. And the claims they'll make about the inferiority of black people or the superiority of white people or the sinister influence of Jewish people are patently racist or anti-Semitic. But on the other hand, I feel like it's really necessary to sort of notice the ways that they're also reflecting back a kind of practice of ancient history that has some kind of uncomfortable overlaps or similarities with at least the traditional practice of, of ancient history, which basically depends on an idea that the ancient world is valuable to study, is impressive. I mean, I guess I would say this is why we have departments of classics in universities to devoted to the study of a particular time in history and a particular geographic range, because those that time in history and that geographic area is sort of marked off as having a special value. And there's something very kind of similar in that institutional structure to the attitude that the white supremacists have. And I think to me, that's the the real value of, at least for professional scholars, of studying this material and taking the white supremacists seriously in a sense, is that I think it actually kind of shows us in a really obvious way, in a really hard to ignore way, how important it is to resist that idealizing impulse, how important it is for us to be really conscious of these fundamental ideas in the study of antiquity and be conscious of what those can lead to if they're not complicated with a more sophisticated methodology, which recognizes the biases of the sources and a more all-encompassing view of what the ancient world included. I guess it's appropriate why you chose your podcast to be called Mirror of Antiquity because you kind of want classics to reflect upon itself as a field. Yeah. I mean, I think to be totally honest, I think I chose that name because I thought, I think I had a more old fashioned idea about it when I chose that name. I think I had the idea, well, we can look at antiquity to learn about ourselves, which is a kind of idealizing view of antiquity. And I think you know, I launched the podcast a little bit before I started working on Pharos, but they sort of grew in tandem. And yeah, you know, the more I looked in the mirror, the more sort of 
warped the image appeared if you like and so the the name of the podcast took on sort of other you know more meaning that i had originally intended for it i like how you said that you can look at classics and it really tells you more about yourself than about like what happened and yeah i mean and i mean i think that's a sort of aspect of the contemporary practice of classics that's really promising and you know there's a lot of potential in it this sort of recognition of the way that our present perspective in some sense creates antiquity and studying the different antiquities that have been created by different perspectives that's that's a really uh, i think is a really promising area of of research right now and one that i think should be very interesting kind of beyond narrow academic circles because the public's interest in antiquity is usually also some reflex of what the public is interested in or anxious about or being told to be anxious about <laughs> at that at that time you know that the the white supremacists intersect with that also because i think sometimes scholars of classics can feel like no one really cares about antiquity or respects antiquity anymore <laughs> we can kind of struggle to find ways to convey that antiquity is significant in a contemporary context. Well, the white supremacists have no doubt that antiquity is significant in the contemporary context. They see it as a powerful proof of the rightness of their political ideas. And so there's something kind of energizing about encountering that sort of certainty about the significance of antiquity. And I don't mean you encounter it and say, oh, I'm going over to this side because these are the people who really care about antiquity, but you encounter it and it sort of, I think it can enable us to really articulate a different approach to antiquity that has present significance. I mean, even just the act of rejecting their, the significance they ascribe to antiquity gives it a present significance. You know, going through and talking about pederasty in Sparta, for example, you can actually use that as a, as a form of talking about contemporary political debates in a meaningful and historically accurate accurate way. And that can kind of grow out of a engagement with and rejection of these white supremacist ideas. And I find that in my teaching too, for example, is that the students are depressed by what they read on the white supremacist sites because a lot of them get to college, you know, loving antiquity and they, and it's sort of disturbing to see something so repulsive using antiquity in that way. But they're also kind of angry about it. They often say that encountering that material makes them feel like classics is important and that they want to like contribute to its important. I think most young classic students would probably feel similar um, in that sense of like shock and surprise about it. I, I mean, obviously, I think there's more of a, a tendency for younger kids now to learn about it. When I was younger, it was kind of like you learned about just the stories and the people and you didn't realize like peel back the layer of the onion, so to speak. And I don't mean that in like a derogatory or negative sense saying like all oh, these kids are stupid or anything. I'm just saying like it wasn't until 2016 that I even realized any of this. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got on Twitter and saw like the heap of mess and especially really kicked up with the election and then black Achilles. I was shocked and surprised. I just had no idea. I was naive, I guess is the word to say, naive. I mean, I think I, that was one of the big accomplishments of Donna Zuckerberg's book, I think. And the work she did leading up to publishing that book was, I think a lot of us were naive 
either naive or unwilling to look or thought it wasn't significant that people had these attitudes and her magnificent book came out and that really you know i think is the definitive statement on classics and misogyny online and and so what i'm kind of trying to do is work on the white supremacy aspect of that but you know your to your point about what treatments of antiquity are like especially before Donna Zuckerberg raised awareness of it and before Pharos and just this general movement. I think, you know, online, it seemed like there were two kinds of ways to learn about antiquity. One was sources like what you were talking about, where they basically, you know, their attitude is kind of like antiquity is cool. You know, they present antiquity as kind of just information without really any awareness of the politics of what antiquity can mean. And then there are things like these white supremacist websites where they are very clear that Greco-Roman antiquity is a glorious chapter in the history of white people that provides proof for the superiority of the white race. You know, I think Dr. Zuckerberg was very clear that, you know, that's wrong or that's what I took away from her writing. And I think that's one reason she founded her journal Eidolon was that the representation of antiquity online was so lopsided. It was all either apolitical or far right. And so she founded Eidolon, which I commend to all your listeners if if they haven't um, looked at the articles there. And I think Pharos is kind of just one part of that ecosystem to you know try to make sure that a better political persuasion or a better approach to antiquity is represented and available online for, for people to find. How did you get plugged into this world of online misappropriations of Greco-Roman antiquity by hate groups? Uh, that's something I've always been super curious about. Like, where do you find this stuff? <laughs> I mean, a lot of what I've written about are things that readers have sent me. Probably about a quarter of the things I've written about are things that uh, readers sent me. And anybody who's listening can uh, can write to me at pharosclassics at vassar.edu or find us on social media at pharosclassics. Still not on Tumblr, actually. <laughs> so people point out things to me. But uh, you know, a lot of the work, especially over the first year or year and a half, was to kind of try to figure out what the landscape was and learn where the major sites were that were engaged with Greco-Roman antiquity. And I mean... Part of that was I took guidance from these organizations that track white nationalism and hate groups. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League in the UK, there's an organization called Hope Not Hate, and there are some others. They keep a pretty extensive catalog of white supremacist websites, and they do a lot of work to figure out which ones are influential, either in terms of how many people visit them or the sort of prominence of the people running the sites. So over time, we've kind of settled into taking their guidance. And so anytime they call attention to something as a major outlet, I try to look into it and find out if Greco-Roman antiquity is part of the material in those outlets. And it almost always is. <laughs> One thing I've learned about the white supremacist movement in this country right now in the United States is that it's a movement that is self-consciously distancing itself from 20th century white supremacy, which the contemporary movement associates with violence, totalitarian politics, 
neo-Nazi imagery and fetishization of Hitler. And they, the contemporary movement just sees all of those things as a losing proposition. You know, they're talking about people like William F. Pierce, who wrote the Turner Diaries and his idea of like the need for an accelerationist race war or violent skinhead groups. So they're trying to be more deceptive with their white supremacy views. What they're trying to do, and they're very they're very explicit about this, is they talk about their work as being metapolitical. And that's actually a term taken from far left politics. It's a term developed by the Marxist Antonio Gramsci. And it's basically an idea that before political change can happen, a kind of cultural and intellectual change needs to happen in the in the populace. That ideas need to be made acceptable culturally before you can expect for the political process to endorse those ideas. So their goals are essentially to make their viewpoints accepted into the majority of people and then they can kind of force their policies. Yeah. So one of the one of the major sites I work on in their about pages, they say something like our goal is to make pro-white positions so widespread that it doesn't matter who's elected. Antiquity is a key part of that metapolitical project because anytime you have a sort of pr- something that is considered prestigious by a lot of people, considered admirable by a lot of people, considered valuable or inspirational or worthy of emulation by a lot of people, that's going to be useful metapolitically because you can you can make your ideas acceptable by claiming that those ideas were acceptable or are in some ways legitimized or endorsed by this period of history that most people consider impressive. And so I see that as their the sort of fundamental reason they're interested in Greco-Roman antiquity because it's useful rhetorically for them as a source of prestige and admiration for their ideas. And this is why correcting their errors and distortions and even their lies about antiquity is not sufficient to understand and counter the way they're using antiquity because a lot of times they don't actually need to lie about antiquity or distort it to find endorsement for their positions. Uh, Something I've been reading a lot about on the sites is, you know, I'm kind of generalizing about white supremacists, but many of them believe in the need for a white ethno state. You know, they basically believe that it is impossible for white people to live in harmony with other kinds of people because diversity just always creates conflict. There's so much jealousy about the superiority of white people. You know, white people basically need a white-only civilization so that they can achieve their potential without the hindrance of all these other inferior kinds of people. So they're very interested in the idea of an ethnostate. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about how to bring that about and how possible it is. But one thing they write a lot about is the Greek city-state as a kind of proof of the viability of the ethnostate. So they they look at someone like Pericles, who anywhere you look is held up as this great statesman, this impressive orator, uh, this person who really articulated the values of a, of a democratic society in his funeral oration. They look at Pericles and they and they point out, well, Pericles understood that Athens needed to be an ethnostate because he established citizenship requirements that made it so that it w- the only way you could be a citizen 
was if you had two parents who were native born Athenians. He just understood like there should be no foreigners who have citizenship. He understood that an ethno state was the best way to go. And then they can easily say, and look what happened. You've got Periclean Athens with its, you know, the most impressive architecture of the ancient world with a flourishing of literary and intellectual thought, of philosophical thought. That just shows that the ethnostate is the way to go. Now, you know, there are various ways you can kind of criticize that use from the kind of in the details. I guess I feel that fundamentally they're right about Periclean Athens in a certain way. The way to address it is to realize that they are relying on widespread respect for Periclean Athens to legitimize their politics. I mean, I guess in a way they may be right about Periclean Athens, but also like ignores a lot of other places that were multiculturalism that flourished, like Miletus. Right. You know, like Rome. Rome was very multiculturalism and it kind of it lasted even way longer than Athens did. <laughs> Well, although they, they talk about Rome as kind of an anti-model, right? If, if Sparta and Athens are their models for the ethnostate, most of the writing about Rome on the white supremacist sites is about how it could have been a great empire, but it succumbed to multiculturalism and immigration and moral decadence. And that shows what not to do. But but you're fundamentally right. Like their their view of antiquity is very narrow, right? They don't they don't write about Miletus. It's kind of like that phrase classics. They just look to the classical period and ignore all the evidence after that. Right. And 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 I think you're exactly right about that. But I think what, what I've come to feel is that that's also a sin that the discipline of classics is guilty of. Hopefully less and less so. You know, I'm speaking about the kind of traditional form of the discipline. You're completely right. I started this podcast. Uh, one of the things, and I don't know if I'm actually going to achieve it. But one of the things that led me to start the podcast and was one of the, the initial goals was I wanted to cover, we didn't even cover the Hellenistic period in my Greek history course. It was just to Alexander and that was it. And I was like, well, I want to cover that in my podcast because there's so much that was accomplished during that period. That's not just like a sideshow to Rome. I thought like somebody needs to make a miniseries about the like what happened after the death of Alexander. It's like as good as Game of Thrones. And it's like, you know, the rivalries and the complexity and the stories that come out of that. I say that it's a sin of traditional historical practice to focus only on the quote unquote classical and not on Miletus or Ephesus or these places that were out of the political center or less well documented in the sources. But it's also, I mean, I don't know if I want to call, call it a sin, but, you know, it also makes you realize how popular representations of the ancient world tend to focus on a pretty narrow slice of antiquity also. The movie Alexander is a is a good example. Whatever we want to say about it being historically accurate or or not, you know, it's taking a very well documented, very well known, very respected figure from antiquity and presenting his story and and audiences like that. So there's a kind of like feedback loop or self-perpetuation of this narrow view of antiquity, which I think a lot of people don't realize is congenial to white supremacy. <laughs> because I'm not saying that Alexander is a white supremacist movie, but it's part of a sort of attitude towards the ancient world that allows white supremacy to continue being selective because it doesn't seem strange 
if all you've ever seen are representations of the Roman Empire, Sparta, Athens, and Alexander, and the, say the Trojan War, then it doesn't seem strange if white supremacists only talk about those things, right? That, you know, it's not just the discipline of classics. It's kind of like we all have a kind of narrow view of what the ancient world included. And I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be done to like broaden that that view. And I try to do that when I can on my site. And that's a place where actually, you know, my personal expertise is probably not sufficient. Like I really need to get back to engaging more specialists in the work because they can point out the variety of the ancient world much better than I did. What is your personal expertise? My professional training is in Latin literature. This was just a, a project that you just kind of, as we mentioned, just kind of like came out of nowhere almost. <laughs> you know, I, you know, Donna Zuckerberg said someone should try this. I was kind of feeling like I, you know, was looking for something interesting and I felt drawn to the politics of it in the contemporary setting. And I felt like I had the means to do it with what I had, the kind of support I had at the institution. So I thought, well, I should try it. But yeah, I mean, in a way, in a lot of ways, I've been making it up as I go along and I'm very happy to admit that. But I was going to say, you know, one example that comes to mind of something, you know, I learned while working on this is when the BBC and Netflix released Troy Fall of a City with um, a black actor playing Achilles. I wrote a series of articles about that. These were were with consultation of many outside scholars who were very generous in contributing their expertise. And, you know, one thing that the white supremacists were saying was that especially on social media, people were saying things like there were no black people in antiquity or this is historically inaccurate or the ancient Greeks would be appalled at this representation or or whatever it was. The actual essays on the white supremacist websites took a kind of different approach. Their approach was that because ancient Greek history must be white history, that's their kind of fundamental assumption. Casting a black actor to play Achilles is an erasure of white history and is part of a kind of global conspiracy to exterminate white people. That was the, you know, the more developed white supremacist sort of thing. But in re- you know, in response to the people on social media who are just doing these, you know, one-off little things. I'm sure those people weren't as angry when like was it Brad Pitt played the mummy? You know, like it's just it's very hypocritical. And but you learn amazing things working on the, working on this material because Achilles wasn't the only black character on the show. There was Aeneas was also played by a black actor, and Zeus was played by a black actor, and there were there even were some others. And so some somebody I was corresponding with, I actually don't remember who it was right now, pointed out to me that there's a fragmentary play of Sophocles, the Enochus, in which this isn't a hundred percent. Not everyone accepts this, but it seems pretty clear that the Zeus who appeared on stage in that play, he's like an African Zeus who's described with adjectives of darkness and blackness. What does the Enochus mean? That's the name of a character in it. And so I never learned about this, that there was a black Zeus on stage in ancient Athens in a Sophocles play. (laughs) But to that claim that the ancient Athenians would be appalled, it, you know, and it allows you to say like they had seen African gods on stage before in the in the Enochus. It was part of the variety of understanding of myth that was completely natural to them. So, and also, it's a myth; it's not true. So, like you have that famous Xenophanes quote. Yeah, right. If the if the cows had gods, they would look like cows. 
your gods will look like however you want them to look like based upon your current situations. But even on the point of Achilles, you know, th- that was one thing, again, on social media, people were saying they were they were claiming that, you know, oh, the liberal BBC is so hypocritical because they're blackwashing this history. And they're always trying to avoid whitewashing history, but they're perfectly willing to blackwash history. And this is proof of like an anti-white elite trying to exterminate white people. But actually, in antiquity, there was a, a figure known as Memnon, not in the Iliad, but in the in the poem that told the events after the Iliad. This warrior Memnon comes to join the Trojans and helps them fight against the Greeks. And eventually, Achilles does kill Memnon. And Memnon, he's kind of complicated figure. It's not clear where in the Homeric poems he is from. He's in later sources connected to Ethiopia. Actually, in the Homeric sources connected to Ethiopia, it's not that clear what the Homeric poems mean by Ethiopia. In later sources, Ethiopia is definitely considered part of Africa, and it's even etymologized to mean the place where people look black. Is Ethiopia is kind of like that place far away south? Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it, it seems like in the Homeric period, it was probably just a kind of un, unknown, practically mytho- mythological place. But later sources definitely considered Memnon black. So it's a little it's a little unclear what he was in these. But what's what's sort of interesting about Memnon is that there's actually an interpretation of the representation of Achilles in the Iliad that asserts that the similarities in the way Memnon is represented and Achilles is represented show that the representation of Achilles in the Iliad is actually a reworking of an earlier Memnon story. You know, all the Homeric epics are sort of constructed by this recombination and reanalysis of earlier traditional material. And so you can actually make the argument, this is something that not all professional scholars assert, this idea that the Memnon story precedes the Achilles story, that Achilles is a kind of reworking of Memnon. But, you know, to this claim that a black Achilles blackwashes the story, you can actually say, well, actually, if you accept this analysis of Achilles as a reworking of a Memnon figure, then Achilles himself was already a sort of whitewashed <laughs> version of, of Memnon. Not to say, no, we're right and you're wrong, but just to show that like this way of talking about Homeric material is just fundamentally misunderstands the way Homeric material works in its sort of recombinatory, reinterpreting uh, reassembling, remixing, to use a contemporary term, way of constructing characters, even the central characters like like Achilles, who are actually amalgamations of a lot of other characters that appear in the Iliad and other poems of, of that sort of style. The whole Black Achilles thing was like, it was problematic in a lot of senses for me. Not Black Achilles, the action, but like just the controversy simply because it showed some of the things that I, I kind of get annoyed with most when it comes with either some classicists or white supremacists or I don't know. It's this whole like, okay, Homer, he's untouchable. But like, okay, at the same time, what we have of this myth is what just so happened to survive. There were many different retellings of the Achilles myth and it's canon, but like there's no one true myth. Even later ancient sources would rework myths to fit their what they wanted to show on stage and drama or their poems. That's just what contemporary films are doing in a sense. But I mean, since 2000 years later, it's seen as like destroying these classics or great books. It's a very superficial way of understanding the classical world, in my opinion. 
Yeah, right. I mean, and that's another version of the kind of narrowness of the white supremacist approach is they they want to insist that the things that survive are the totality of what there was. I might put it a little differently than you did. You know, you said something like we only have what happened to survive. I think that's, you know, basically true that there's a lot of randomness to it. But keep in mind, there's also a sort of selection process over the years that is ideologically motivated. And so if for most of history, Greco-Roman antiquity is regarded as being homogeneous, for example, or I guess what I'm guess what I'm thinking is that there may have been a secondary selection after the randomness of what made it say to the you know the early modern period. There's a secondary selection of what gets kind of elevated and probably in some cases preserved, which is probably driven by a narrow view of what antiquity encompasses. That's a kind of a, just a guess on my part, but. And in fact, I've seen some arguments that 17th century studies of antiquity were should actually provide a model for what we should be doing now because they were so much more inclusive of their view in their view of what constituted the ancient Mediterranean world and and so on. So there's like lost knowledge from the 18th and 19th century. I guess I I shouldn't say that without knowing if it's true. I guess I should say, but. You know, I do think we we shouldn't also underestimate the way political considerations can affect what is knowable and certainly what what is elevated and made prominent. And I think for most of the last several centuries, the approach to Greco-Roman antiquity was one that was basically invested in declaring it a white history a homogeneous white history that sort of ratified the ascendancy of European people in various colonialist and imperialist projects. It's it's something that I kind of reiterate, like, and this fits in perfectly. It's just like what we think we know is more so like what scholarship has argued. And like, there's no such thing really as like revisionist history. I don't think like it, like all history should be revised sort of thing. Like, we get more evidence or different interpretation based upon like, and and this kind of circles back to where we were earlier. We're like, your interpretation of evidence may tell you more about you than it does actually about that aspect of antiquity too. Like the way you see the evidence may be more guided by your worldview and values than anything else. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of nuance and to make declarative statements is just kind of like arrogant in my opinion. That's another feature of white supremacist history writing is a kind of certainty that I think of a real historian of antiquity, you know, should resist given the limitations of the evidence. Let me just circle back to talking about the site a little bit. You know, I like over time, I said over time, I've saw the role of the site to be more documentary than corrective, as it were, because I felt that in some ways, the biggest claims of the white supremacists were needed need to be corrected with a re- orientation of our attitude toward antiquity, one less kind of idealizing rather than the corrective corrective of simple facts. So, you know, now the way I'm kind of thinking about the site after having run it for a few years is that the things I'm trying to accomplish with it are for it to be a place where people can learn that white supremacists do appropriate Greece and Rome in support of their politics. I mean, you and I talked about both of us not really knowing about that, but I think actually most people don't know that. And so, you know, I think one role I'm trying to play on the site is to, you know, if anybody doubts that white supremacists or is unaware that white supremacists are interested in Greco-Roman antiquity, they can come to my site and find 
many, many examples showing that they are interested in Greco-Roman antiquity. And a, a kind of side point of that is that they're not just interested in Greco-Roman antiquity, but they're interested actually in professional scholarship on Greco-Roman antiquity. At some point in this recording, you mentioned where are they getting this stuff, but actually a lot of these sites have reviews of published academic scholarship on Greco-Roman antiquity, or they cite scholarship in their articles. Now, very often it's pretty easy to show that they are citing it tendentiously or in bad faith. Yeah, they're doing it. They're doing it in bad faith, but they are at least looking at those books. One example, again, to, to return to this idea of uh, the ancient Greek city-states as ethnostates, um, one, one book they're interested in is this book by Susan Lape called Race and Citizen Identity in the Classical Athenian Democracy. You know, they cite that book as proof that the ancient Athenians thought of citizenship in racial terms, which of course is what they want us to do. They want our ethnostates to make citizenship a racial category. They want us to racialize the category of citizenship. If you read Susan Lape's book, it is about that. But what she's actually saying is that when there was conflict in Athens, when there was political unrest in Athens, the Athenians turned to racialize discourse around citizenship. So it actually doesn't support them that well. It actually... What Susan Lape actually shows is that when the Athenians talked about citizenship in racial terms, they were doing that to kind of try to shore up existing power structures and resist any kind of change to the way things were done in Athens. And so it makes it pretty clear that when these groups talk about citizenship being racialized, they're doing something very old that kind of conservative politicians in the sense of like, let's not let anything change because we like having power in the current structure. They were doing something that politicians like that have, have always done since Athens, but they are reading that they are looking at the scholarship and citing it. They're using scholarly authority to bolster their views, just the same as they're using the prestige of antiquity to bolster their views. So that's one thing I'm trying to do on the site. They're not only misappropriating, but they're also appropriating classics. I actually try to avoid this word misappropriating because it makes it sound like they're only frauds, like they're only liars and charlatans. And it's actually much more complicated than that. They are, like I said, they're tr- they are using the prestige of antiquity to ratify their racist beliefs. And the prestige of antiquity is something that a lot of people who are not white supremacists believe in and swear by. <laughs> and so... I'm not really comfortable calling that attitude toward antiquity a misappropriation unless we're really getting serious about questioning that prestige. And I think it's I think if we call it misappropriation, it sort of gives us permission to not consider the ways that widespread mainstream attitudes towards classics actually overlap a lot with white supremacist attitudes. You know, the the other thing I guess I'm trying to counter on my site is the and this is related, the idea that if you're a racist, you must be stupid. I think that's a kind of widespread idea in American culture. I think that kind of wraps up into like the racists are just like a combination of like Southern redneck country hicks. They're in like all sections of society. It's just some people, you have these stereotypes. And I think that's where that wraps up into. Right. And so that, you know, the people who I, and this isn't true of everything I've written about, but more and more, I'm more and more interested on the site in people who are very well educated. A lot of them have PhDs. 
very good writers, obviously very smart in various ways, and they're white supremacists, and they're using their intelligence to promote white supremacy. And so, you know, I think classics is a good way to show that that is a something that can happen because a lot of people associate the study of Greco-Roman antiquity as like a very intellectual pursuit, a kind of core academic high culture pursuit. And so seeing that white supremacists engage with antiquity, know their history in various ways, um, I think kind of helps dislodge that narrative of racism as something that is only a practice of uneducated people. I guess I'm also feeling like I should give a couple examples of like kind of simple examples of what I'm talking about. There's a website called Stormfront, which is actually one of the oldest, it's probably the oldest neo-Nazi website in existence. It goes back to like 1994, you know, a time when very few people even had internet. It's a web forum where people can comment on various threads and you know they have they have various logos each time you log into the site there's a different logo and two of their logos show examples of ancient architecture each of their logos is supposed to sort of promote the superiority of white people and one of them is a picture of the parthenon in athens and another one is a picture of a roman aqueduct in france the pont du gard and both of them have the caption every month is white history month the idea basically being white people built these and that's how we know that white people are superior. You can find the oldest Islamophobic site in the in the world. This is the site where uh, the Norwegian terrorist Anders Breivik was radicalized. They have articles about how contemporary Europe is going to collapse like the Roman Empire because Muslim immigration is just like and in some ways worse than the invasion of barbarians. That's their terminology. The invasion of barbarians in the fourth and fifth century in antiquity. And, you know, in using that terminology, barbarians, they're just using the terminology that historians have used and in some cases continue to use right up into the 21st century. I mean, it's very, uh, you know, Edward Gibbon. His decline and fall of the Roman Empire is one major source for this narrative about barbarians overthrowing the Roman Empire. But so the terminology they're using basically to turn refugees into violent invaders is, you know, characteristic of a lot of uh, ancient historical narratives that don't think of themselves as being xenophobic or, or white supremacist. That's Gates of Vienna. You find discussions of ancient Athens and Sparta as models for ethnostates. You find a lot of admiration for, and they'll just openly call it the Aryan warrior ethos, which is probably best represented, they think, by the hyper-militarized, hyper-masculine Spartans, but they also locate it in Achilles and Odysseus, for example, or I was just, I just wrote an article about someone who thinks Alcibiades represents this. But basically this idea of the like, warrior man who was completely free in some profound sense and who epitomizes this kind of virile struggle against an oppressive world that is necessary to survive. You know, they they see the contemporary world as being under the control of a sinister group of people. Sometimes these are Jewish people. Sometimes it's just a sinister, unidentified group, but basically an anti-white sinister group that is hell-bent on the extermination of white people and 
what's necessary is a kind of virile struggle against this soul-crushing exterminationist agenda. And so they, you know, they find in ancient warriors the kind of model for what that virile struggle looks like. That's a way that misogyny and or sort of a kind of hyper-masculine, often misogynist attitude can overlap with white supremacy. So there's all kinds of examples like that and and more. And I just I want to just say that these sites all distance themselves from violence. They all formally disavow violence and they say that they're just interested in promoting white interests and the, you know, preserving kind of white ideas and the prestige of whiteness and so on. I mean, they're very clear about their racial project. But there are plenty of examples of these sites influencing violent terrorists and mass murderers. So I, I mentioned Brevik a, a minute ago. You know, he was a reader of Gates of Vienna, which is has lots of ancient content on it. I don't say that ancient material in particular motivates mass shooters, but it's present on the sites that motivate mass shooters. The terrorist who perpetrated the attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, his manifesto was called The Great Replacement, which is a reference to a xenophobic book by a French intellectual, which uses a platonic dialogue, the the Cratylus of Plato, as its sort of core argument that Frenchness is this profound thing that you can only have through ancestry and that anyone who comes to France can never be French in a in a true sense. They're always going to be other. They're always going to be foreigners. They're always going to be alien to French culture. And as a result, they can only destroy French culture by their presence. You know, it's a major xenophobic manifesto that this mass murderer referred to in his in his manifesto. And sure enough, Greco-Roman antiquity is right in the center of it. <laughs> it's a little funny. In the French edition, the discussion of Plato's Cratylus comes very early in the book. It's very prominent in the early parts of the book. In the English edition written for Americans, the discussion of the Cratylus is like in the last quarter. <laughs> for the American audience, he maybe didn't think that the Cratylus would be as persuasive as he did for the French audience. But, you know, in both cases, classical antiquity is there. And so, you know, it's very hard to draw a direct line between this metapolitical work that the that they're doing on the websites and the actions of mass murderers, you know, to prove that one led to the other. Still more difficult, impossible even to say that a discussion of antiquity caused it. But I think it's pretty clear there's a correlation between those things. And in fact, there's an organization called the Dangerous Speech Project, which is is really doing this this work to kind of theorize this concept of dangerous speech, which is speech which increases the likelihood that someone that hears it will engage in in violence, and that's a that I think is a really useful emerging category for thinking about the relationship of hate speech and violence. Have you seen any like appropriation, I suppose, of like Greco-Roman world from like? Not necessarily white supremacists, but, you know, like maybe like radical Islam who kind of like warp the Greek world to kind of, you know, do it from the opposite angle, if that makes any sense. I, you know, I haven't seen that, but I haven't also been looking for it. It's, you know, it's not something I've developed the skill to identify, but it is interesting. This is a couple of years ago now, but there was a, a group gathered called Claiming the Classical, which was trying to consider the full range of 
political uses of Greco-Roman antiquity. It wasn't focused specifically on white supremacy or hate necessarily. That's just kind of was viewed as one political use of antiquity. Well, there were there were some scholars there from Turkey, for example, who were saying that antiquity has a different kind of status there. Different kind of status in Turkey. But I think it was like antiquity in Turkey can be invoked almost in an anti-European way because you know they can sort of claim that ancient history as proof that what Europe regards as its as its heritage and its ancestry is not really completely European. Like they kind of use it against Europe in a sense. I mean, they were talking on the level of propaganda, not that the like scholarly community is necessarily doing that. So I don't want to misrepresent what they were they were doing. In some ways, they were very critical of of that kind of nationalist view of Greco-Roman antiquity. But, you know, it is interesting to see the different kind of political uses that uh, Greco-Roman antiquity can have. And in fact, the claiming the classical report, there was a report written by the organizers that I can find a link to and send you to. There were a lot of interesting ones on China, for example. At least at that time, one of the one of the speakers had just come back from Beijing and had said that at, at the Beijing airport, when you get off the plane, you there was this big mural, which was a photograph of Chinese artists painting portraits of famous works of Greek sculpture. And he used that as a kind of starting point for a discussion of like the Chinese government's view of ancient Greece and showing all these ways that they were, that their interest in Greece was motivated by a desire to promote themselves as a kind of modern counterpart to what Greece was in the ancient world. So again, like it, the classical is interesting outside of kind of Eurocentric circles. It's the Eurocentrist area happens to be my area of specialization, I guess. I mean, I think you know the only other thing I'd want to say is just to you know encourage your listeners to check out the check out the website at doingjusticetotheclassics.org or ferrosclassics.org or follow us on social media at ferrosclassics. That's P H A R O S classics. And Mirror of Antiquity, if you ever get back to it. Listeners should check out the episodes you have up so far. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, mirrorofantiquity.com and at Mirror Antiquity. You can find the 10 episodes of my podcast about intersections between the Greco-Roman world and the contemporary world. I definitely appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's it's great great to be on the show. 